0: Hope Church. We are a study through the book of Matthew, and this is an exciting Sunday because uh, this Sunday we begin the Sermon on the Mount, um, the m- longest uh, continuous message that Jesus gave that we have recorded in the scriptures. Of course, he preached for longer at other times, but this is the longest recorded message, um, and it's not just powerful because of its length. Um, But every line in it is full of power and full of application um, for our lives. And so we really want to get into that this morning and and begin our study in it. And so let's go ahead again to the Lord in prayer and then we'll um, read together and live together. In your name, Jesus, we come together this morning. Father, we come um, to be in your presence, to confess our love for you to confess our sins to you, to learn from you, to fellowship together, and to have our common bond um, in what you've given us, dear God. As you've given us your Son, you've given us life, uh, an eternal life, an abundant life. Uh, You've given us your Spirit. You've given us yourself. You've given us everything. We thank you for your Word that you've given us. and Lord, may we, may we live according to what you've taught us. We ask these things, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. Okay, and so first we just want to remind us, remind ourselves um, in this message, you know, who, the audience that, that Jesus has as he gives this uh, message. And so um, if you have your Bibles this morning, you want to turn in Matthew, uh, the end of chapter 4, In Matthew chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 23, and it says, And Jesus went all about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed, healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth." Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And for they for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. we will stop there for now, uh, but I want us to keep a few things um, in mind as we've read this. That as Jesus is teaching this, that co- the context of, of Matthew four seventeen is also at play. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, of kingdom of God is at hand. Um, and so Matthew is is writing this, and he puts this here at, at this stage of the book because he wants to set the scene. For those who are reading, um, you know his words to see everything else of Jesus' ministry through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, um, through the lens of what he what he taught the people, um, you know, and he calls, um, you know, his dis- disciples are the ones that are you know immediate disciples that he's been calling to follow in him in ministry are obviously going to be the closest in the the crowd to hear his words, but. You know, everyone is is hearing these words. All who would desire to be one of his disciples, um, Jesus is letting them know: this is the standard. This is what I expect of of my disciples. You know, really, when we see Matthew five through seven, we need to see it through the lens of: these are the expectations that Jesus has for those who follow him. You know, many times this passage of scripture, just Matthew five through seven, the whole thing kind of gets written off of like some idealistic, you know, teaching that we could never obtain to, um, and therefore we don't need to do anything with it. Or it's for some other time, from some, for some future time. It's not expectations for us here and now, and therefore we don't need to be concerned with it. But I think if we're fair to what Jesus is saying, if we're fair to the text, then we need to understand that these are actual expectations for how we live in the kingdom of God here and now on earth, in our human flesh. Now, we understand that we can only live according to the ways of God through the power of God. You know, God has to change us. God has to change those lives. But, but then if, if we are people who are in his kingdom... We are no longer slaves to sin. We can live according to His ways. It is indeed possible. If you have a defeatist mindset that it's not possible, well, your life is just going to be full of misery and full of of um, it's going to be lacking because you're because you're going to have this idea that you're always just going to live life defeated by sin and in sin and there's kind of no way escape and my only salvation is that when it's all said and done, because I believed in Jesus, that I, I at least get to be in heaven. But that's kind of the extent of it. But when we, and, and so what we have there is we end up having this kind of low standard for followers of Jesus where it's just, you know, believe, and then what after, happens after that isn't that big of a deal. And this is a problem when we're just only focused on conversion and we're not focused on discipleship, and so we need to you know, like we we do need to care to preach the good news of Jesus that people you know repent, they change their minds about what they used to believe in, they change their minds about their sin, they turn from their sin, and they believe in Jesus and begin to follow Him. But that be, initial belief is the first step. It's a hugely you know it's it's a massively important step. But after that has to come the discipleship. After that, we have to have the discipleship, um, and so in this Matthew five through seven, we have this. Now, remember, his audience would have heard the whole thing, you know, at one time, and so this week, I encourage you just to take, you know, twenty minutes, sit down, and just read Matthew's chapter five through seven as a whole, uh, and that would be important um, for for us. And so again. He's teaching his disciples how he wants us to live. He's focused on the inward change of the heart that's going to result in an outward, godly living in everyday life. So Jesus is concerned about the change of heart within us, the change of mind within us, and then that that is followed through with, through concrete actions, day by day. Now, contrast that to the religious leaders of his day who were Really, only concerned about the external appearances, appearances of being religious. And by that I mean, you know, what the public saw of, of you. But now, what you did in your own home, didn't so much, you know, that's not so important. Um, what you do in your business, not so much important. But what, you know, it, it's only as important as people's perception that you are religiously, you know, pious, that you have an appearance that you love God and care about. You know, the things of God. But they weren't so concerned about reality. And so at the end of the message in Matthew 7:24 through29, it drives this home is where Jesus says, "Therefore ever he hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock." Notice hears and then does, you know, takes the actions. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock, but everyone who heard these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. So the, Jesus had an authority with his teaching because he had a spiritual reality, you know, to his teaching. He went to the heart of issues and not just the appearance of things. So what Jesus desires for us is to be obedient to his teaching. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments In the keeping of the commandments of Jesus. How would disciples abide in the love of the father and of the son? And Jesus himself is also a model in his humanity. He was a a model of obedience as he was obedient even to the point of death on the cross for us. Um, And so Jesus is proving to us and showing us that obedience for us is possible in his name. We can live a life that pleases God here on the earth. We don't have to live a life that is that causes God grief. Where it says, you know, do not grieve the Holy Spirit is what the scriptures instruct us. So we, ha- we can live a life that brings God joy and not grief. We can do it here on the earth, here and now, 2017. We can do that. So now let's look at these um, first verses where it says, blessed are, these are known as the Beatitudes, because, quote-unquote, this is what our um, attitude um, should be. Um, but oftentimes, these get misunderstood. They get taken, like, each, um, each section, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, or, or blessed are the peacemakers. They get taken as, like, a category of people. Okay, so let's take peacemakers, for example. So we can think of peacemakers as policemen, or policewomen marriage counselors, UN peacekeepers. Um, and so we can think about it in that way. But the problem is when we think about it in that way, then that's a job for somebody else. It's a job for somebody else to be a peacemaker. Not my job. Not my responsibility. And we can do that with each you know, of these or any of these that we want to. Um, blessed are those who mourn. Well then, only those who've been through like truly traumatic experiences in life, that only applies to them. And, and so we can you know, kind of categorize these things out and then take away our need to even really examine what is being said here. But the better view is to understand that Jesus is talking about the character of his disciples. That his disciples will have all of the character that you see here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. That this will defi- this defines our character. And then what we see with that, um, if, if you think about, if you, if you fulfill that character, if that's the character that you have, you see a parallel in Galatians chapter 5 to the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and actually, we can. I might just go ahead and uh, hand these out. Edward, could you hand on this side? And that way, we can all just look at this together. i will make it a little easier. Peter, could you hand on this, this side? All right. Okay. So, what do we see? Uh, Are The the characteristics of those who are followers of Jesus, who are striving to be disciples of of Jesus, poor in spirit, they mourn, they're meek, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're merciful, they're pure in heart, they're peacemakers, and they're often persecuted, or they are persecuted, I should say. And the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So let's look at how... Um, this works out. So, you know, even that first one, poor in spirit. That's that's what's needed first of all to know God in the first place. To even be a, fo- a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, you have to be poor in spirit. What that means is to be humble. It means to understand, you know, who you are before for God. That you're, you're you know you're not adequate. You're sinful. You know that I am a sinful person. Um, is going to, to be a, a key acknowledgement because we know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, as it says in James chapter four verse six. But let's look at Luke eighteen nine through fourteen, and this really um, helps us to understand what Jesus is teaching here and gives a contrast between the type of humility. Um, That Jesus is looking for versus the false pride of people who are just striving to be religious. To appear to be religious. Luke 18 and verse 9. It says, And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself... God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. It's interesting to note that Jesus says that he prayed thus with himself. It's like, God's not even hearing that prayer. You know, He says he's talking to God, but he's not really. You know, he's just talking words to himself that he that he feels good to hear about himself. And he feels good that other people can hear him say these things about himself, because he's ultimately an arrogant person. But verse thirteen, and the tax collector standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the first characteristic, first character trait of a disciple of Jesus is to be poor in spirit, which means to be humble before God. This is the first act really of love towards God, parallel to the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit of love. The next thing is a disciple will mourn. A disciple is going to mourn over his own sin. And he's going to mourn over the havoc sin has wrecked on our world. Second Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So he's got a godly sorrow. He's sorrowful for his own sin. And, and this is true... When coming to know Jesus, but also beyond that, throughout life, when we sin, when we do fail, there should be a sorrow that comes with that—not a self-justification, not a pride, not a writing it off as it's not that big of a deal—but a sorrow before God, a mourning before God. When we see the the pain that um, is caused by sin in our world, we should mourn about that. It is normal for a disciple of Jesus Christ. To see what happened in Las Vegas and to mourn. When we see famine that is brought about through uh, man's greed and bad stewardship, it should cause us, us to mourn. When we see wars and violence in our world, it should cause us to mourn. Now, we understand that there All of these things are happening all of the time in our world. So, you know, sometimes the question is, well, then are we just always mourning all the time? I mean, it would be understandable, right? I mean, if you just read the news every day, there's something to mourn about. But the fruit of the Spirit there is joy. That God, you know, ultimately, He turns our sadness to joy. That He gives us a reason to be joyful Despite what's going on in our own circumstances or in the broader circumstances of the world. There's still a reason to sing his praise. That we can have joy that, that goes beyond the circumstances. Our joy is found in Jesus and what God is doing. And, you know, and we also understand that while terrible things are happening in the world today, also great things are happening in the world today. People are coming to know Jesus today people are sharing their food today people are receiving justice today like there are good things too now the, the bad is always what grabs our attention you know hardly i mean it's rare sometimes you know we get, we do get those hero moments or those sorts of things that the news will share to us but the large percentage of the news is is about the sad and it's about the things that we should mourn about but we also have to remember there are good things happening Today And that we find our joy through one morning and going to God and asking him to work in these situations, whether immediately affecting us or not. And we find our joy by working with Jesus to bring redemption to people. We find our joy when we're helping others um, to have justice in this world. We find our joy in working with God on the mission of God in our world. And so we can have joy in that. You can be a joyful follower of Jesus and a follower of Jesus who mourns. And that might sound, you know, odd. But it, but our, our walk with Jesus, it is in this regard, it does have some complexity to it. You know, it's easy for us to say, always be joyful. Are always mourned. It's a little bit more nuanced, you know, to to say God wants us to mourn and to be joyful, but we should experience those things. I mean, I've, I've heard it said, and I think it's you know probably pretty true. But if if you've um, you know you've lived a, a a real day, if you've loved. You've cried and you've laughed. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a full day right there. When you can love and, and, and mourn and even laugh in the same, same day. The next one, a disciple will be meek. This is a restrained strength, you know, for the purpose of Peace. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Or he, you know, he says that he is, you know, his characteristic, the uh, characteristic of Jesus himself is that he is meek. Now, meekness is not weakness. Weakness is the inability to do something. But meekness is a restrained strength that knows the appropriate time to do something and the appropriate time not to. That's a true strength. Jesus exhibited this perfectly in his life and in his ministry. He knew when it was right to use his strength to drive the money changers and those proffering off of prayer in the temple. To drive them out with whips and to throw their tables over. That scene should really indicate to us that even in his humanity, Jesus was not weak. And he had an authority about him. But he also restrained himself. When he was on the cross at any moment, he could have said, this world's done, I'll just start another one. He has that power. But he didn't use it because of his love for us. And his obedience to the Father. And so he was restrained in his strength. And that is a meekness. And the world needs to see more of this. The, more, the world needs to see more followers of Jesus who have power but don't insist on using their power. But know when to use it appropriately and when to be when to obviously not use it for the glory of God. And we'll see that throughout the teaching of Jesus. A disciple will hunger and thirst for Righteousness. The disciples are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean for us today? We know Jesus is the one who satisfies us, but what does it mean that we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness? You know, we're going to de- desire strongly for there to be justice in our world. That what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong, and, and we're going to desire for what is right. And this produces in, produces in us, though, the, of the Holy Spirit, this patience. Because we know that when Jesus returns, he's going to wipe away every tear from my eye. He's going to establish his throne, his kingdom in the ultimate sense. And that sin will no longer have dominion, the forces of evil will no longer have sway. But we're a patient, we're patient people. Until that day. And we don't try to, while we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we don't try to uh, force it to happen by using methods that are not pleasing to God. We're patient. We're patient. But there needs to be a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I think that's in a couple of different ways. The first hunger and thirst for righteousness needs to be within our own selves. Because we, can, we obviously can all look at the world and all the injustice in it and go, out there, there is not justice. Out there. But in my own heart and in my own mind, is there justice, is there righteousness, is there a striving for what is right in the sight of God. Or is it just about me, myself, and I? There's a big shift in these things. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, may God give us that hunger and that thirst. That we would live in a way that pleases God. And not the desires of our flesh. That we would be Merciful that we would be merciful people, because a disciple will be merciful, and, and being merciful helps to create environments where kindness reigns over the chaos. And even the scripture tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment, that our first push and our first preference, you know, as God's is, should always be for mercy. Back in the Old Testament, you, hear, you know, God says, "You know how that uh, that they would, you know, repent. You know they would they would turn for, humble themselves and turn for their wickedness so that they would be spared." Like God's preference is mercy, but at the same time, His holiness demands justice. But if God's preference is mercy, and that's obvious when you look at my life and look at your life, that God's preference is mercy because I don't deserve that. But God's preference in my life is mercy. Then our preference in the lives of others should be mercy. But the problem for so much of us so much of the time is that we want, you know, we want judgment for everybody else and we want mercy for ourselves. And that's a problem. You know, we need to we need to ask for mercy as much as it, is, as it is possible for it to be extended. And even asking God to change the hearts of the most vile, the most wicked in our world. Knowing that if they, if they repent, if they turn to Jesus, that they'll receive mercy as we have. We need to understand that God's justice you know, occurs in one of two ways for every person on this earth. Either Jesus, you know, Jesus has paid the just due for it all. Scripture tells us clearly, for he died for not for only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Like, the, it's been paid. Now, whether it's put to that person's account or paid or not, depends on the person's response to the one who paid it. Okay? But at the end of the day, justice is done because either it's under the account of Jesus it was paid for at the cross or if that's not appropriated to their account because they have rejected him, they pay for it in the eternal sense, the judgment of God at the end of the day, justice will be had make no mistake about that but what do we want for people because one of the things that Jesus goes on to say that we're not fully getting to this morning is love your enemies. And so, when we love our enemies, there's a desire for our enemies to turn from their wickedness, to believe in Jesus, and to have their lives radically changed by Him. And that exhibits a great mercy because we know that in a human sense, not everyone is worthy of mercy. I mean, there's some really bad people in our world. But God's mercy, think about, you know, just think about the Apostle Paul. And he tried to destroy the church and he had families separated and he ripped people off, you know, into prison. And he stood over the death of Stephen in approval. He had blood on his hands. And yet God radically saved him. And use his life to change the lives of so many others. And so we can pray, God, may you grant the mercy you gave to Paul, to others. The scripture tells us to love our enemies. And that's a love for them. Is A love for them is not wanting them just to get off the hook. That's not justice. But they would take what Jesus did for them on the cross as their own so that justice in that sense is maintained next again the pure in heart the disciples of Jesus should be pure in heart and this is difficult for us because we are surrounded we are bombarded with the temptation of sin all of the time every day We are bombarded with materialism. Every day we're bombarded with sexuality. Every day we're bombarded with a call to be prideful. Um, Every day we are bombarded with um, a desire or a a push to solve problems through violence. Um, Every day we are being tempted... Towards being impure in heart, and yet we're told that you know blessed are the pure in heart. And really, you know, with these blessed, you could say it another way. You could say you know joyful are the pure in heart. And the person who's, you know, a person who you know, if we're divided, where we kind of want to have a pure heart, but we kind of don't because there's certain things we enjoy that we know are wrong. It's just like a constant position of misery because you're not going to be you're not fully satisfied in the sin, but then you're not fully satisfied in the purity of God. So it's just a state of the. And so we're we're told to, be, to strive to be you know pure in heart, the inner self. We strive to make pure before God and. And we know for the followers of Jesus, 1 John 1 9 is true. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, it's God who gives us that pure heart when we ask him for it, when we ask to be cleansed, when we want to do away with the sin that's in our lives. Um, But I, I think that this is a real question for myself and for all of us is, you know, what are we doing day to day that. Encourages us to have a pure heart because a pure heart doesn't just happen. And what are we doing day to day that discourages us from having a pure heart? Because an impure heart doesn't just happen. You know there are there are inputs and how we handle those inputs. You know all affecting the purity of our hearts. It, you know it's not just like it happens. The purity of our heart is directly related to the inputs that were received and then what we do with those inputs as they come to us. And so sometimes we have an impure heart because we've chosen to have an impure heart. Because we know that we know X makes me impure, but I participate in X. Well, we can't be surprised then that there's the impure heart as a result of that. But there are also times when you're not intentionally putting X into your life. X is just around you. And the scripture says, you know, materialism is just around us. You know, we don't, I mean, we can limit it to a certain degree, but you can't, you know, even if you had no technology in your house, as soon as you leave your house, you're still going to be bombarded just through the visual stimulation of everything in our world. You're going to be pushed towards materialism. So, you know, what does the scripture tell us to do? You know, the scripture tells us to take every thought captive. You know, that we are constantly spiritually aware and examining the world around us. And we're evaluating it according to the teaching of Jesus and to the call of Jesus in our lives. I admit, I don't always do this. And when I don't, I end up in a funky bad place, you know, mentally, heart, spiritually, you know, because I'm I'm just ingesting you know the toxins of our world. And and you know it's like in the food you eat, you can hand, I mean it's like you, you put a certain amount of toxin in there, what happens to your body? It gets toxic. And then what comes out of you then is also toxic. And then the other people around you have to deal with the toxic, and that transmits into their lives. I think one of the ways um, this plays out is evident in a culture of complaining. Like it's—I mean, I don't know that it's ever been different, but we—I mean, our culture, as long as I can remember, my culture. Growing up, you know, it's a culture of just our world. It's a culture to complain. It's a culture to complain, you know. And I I think, and there's so many different ways, you know, you can you can uh, do that. It's, It's almost like, I mean, we'll complain that we have too much. How's how do I like that? We'll say, I have too many clothes and I have to do too much laundry. I have a machine that does it for me but it's still too much and we'll complain about that versus the person that has very little who has to beat their clothes out on the water and rock for like the whole day is spent getting those clothes for their family clean, the limited amount that they have. And, and we'll go, man, Laundry. <laughs> I mean, that's that's just a culture of complaining. It's not based in in reality. It's not based in reality compared to, you know, the larger world and the historical, you know, human condition. We've had clothes since Adam and Eve sent in the garden, <laughs> you know. I mean, since then, we've had clothes. So, you know, I I think most of of history, most of people back in history would look at us and go, Y'all are complaining? But what do they complain about? All sorts of stuff. Because it's a heart sin condition. It's a heart sin condition. Um, And so we need to be careful about. Our hearts and the purity of our hearts, and the fruit of the spirit that goes along with that is faithfulness. That that's you know part what it means to be faithful is to strive to live a life of purity in heart. You know, faithful to our Savior, faithful to our King. And we're to be peacemakers, striving to make peace between people and God, primarily through sharing the gospel. That. You know, we're all sinful. God loves us. Jesus died for us. There's new life. There's peace to be had with God through Jesus, and also between people. We could use more peace in our world. We could use more peace in families, in communities. You know, people seem to always be looking for a fight about something. Now, even, um, even when we're fighting an injustice, we need to have the fruit of the spirit of gentleness about us. You know, even when we're fighting something that's not right, um, you know, that we're still striving to make peace between people and God and people and people. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be times where we have opposition you know, I think sometimes we get we believe this lie that any opposition means we're doing something wrong. You know, any resistance in your life to something means you're doing something wrong. Well, I don't I don't believe that to be true. Sometimes the enemy is going to oppose us. Sometimes people who are against the you know the ways of God are going to oppose the ways of God, and through that, therefore, oppose you because you are for the ways of God. But we still need to be people who are known as people who strive to be peacemakers. We're not um, looking to pick a fight to pick a fight. We're not looking to win just so that we can be right. But we have bigger picture things in mind. So we don't look to argue just for the sake of arguing. But we are known as people who are gentle. With this, it says, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And we need to understand there's qualifiers. And he goes on to give a couple more qualifiers. Verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Okay, so if you're persecuted, what's the reason? You know, sometimes people will be like, oh, I'm being persecuted. Yeah, maybe. Okay. You know, what, what are the reasons of this persecution? Is it a true persecution? What are the reasons for the persecution? Let's put it that way. Um, but here, in this persecution we see that it's for righteousness' sake, it's for the, and then he says, for my sake. The righteousness' sake and the sake of Jesus go together. If it's for justice, then it's, and it's for the sake of Jesus, it's, those things are together. But blessed are you when they say all kinds of evil against you, truthfully? No. Blessed are they when they say all kinds of you know, things that, about you, of evil against you, falsely. They shouldn't be able to make true accusations. They shouldn't be able to say, well, this person's a liar. They shouldn't be able to say, well, this person is a gossip. They shouldn't be able to say, well, this person is just mean and angry. They shouldn't be able to say, you know, other things, and for those things to be true, you should be, they should have to say things falsely. You know, and we see that throughout. I mean, with Jesus, what did they have to do? They had to get people to accuse him falsely. In the early church, what did they have to do against the apostles? You know, when they went in various towns and cities, they get people to make false witness against them. It shouldn't be able to be true. Um, You know, it's kind of that saying, no, you didn't get persecuted because of Jesus, you got persecuted because you're a jerk. You know, like that's... uh, (laughs) <laughs> gotta, why were you really persecuted? You know, let's let's uh, make sure it's for the right reasons. But he says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For those, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, the prophets spoke for God and they were right, now oftentimes they lost their lives for it. That's a true, that's a, that's a heavy, high level persecution. When you die, that's like the highest level of persecution. When you're beaten, you know, and things like that, that's a lower level. When you lose your job, you know, that's a lower level. When somebody won't be your friend, that's a lower level. When somebody says something that's not nice about you, that's a really low level of persecution. So we got to have, you know, we got to understand, like, where we, where our persecution falls on the persecution meter. You know, and then pray and have an attitude accordingly. You could You know. And it's interesting, because sometimes you find people persecution level up, up here. They're totally good with God and the situation, and they have peace in their hearts. Then you got people persecution, just that very bottom level. Somebody you know, said something that wasn't the nicest, and people losing their minds. Losing their absolute minds, ready to sue somebody. Ready to take somebody to court. You know, Ready to never speak to somebody again for the rest of their life. For, you know, low-level things. We have to be bigger than that. We need to at least be up here toward like, you know, lose your friend, lose your your job category. At least in that area before we, you know. But even then, when that sort of stuff, when the real stuff happens, people are usually like, okay, God, I trust you. And I'm going to go with you. But it's interesting our tendency is to handle big stuff usually pretty well. It's the little stuff that we don't handle so great. And the reason is in the big stuff we know we have to depend on God. The big stuff we know we have I got no other I've got no other alternative here but to believe in God. But little stuff we're like I can handle this. And when I handle this it's what a mess. It turns into a mess when I handle this. And so on the little stuff, just as we do with the big stuff, on the little stuff, we've got to give it to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me to handle this in a way that's appropriate. That shares your love and keeps my testimony as one of your followers. Because followers of Jesus will lose their testimony over nothing. Over something really, really tiny and small. Loser testimony. And that takes us to the next section. We'll just do verse 13. It says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And this is what happens when that testimony is lost. It's, you know, it says we're salt. Well, salt has, you know, a flavor to it. It has a preservative quality to it. As followers of Jesus, we should be, you know, we should be salt. Salt gives flavor. We like, you know, you like to put salt on your food, right? Because it gives it flavor. But it also preserves. It can be used to preserve food for to last a longer period of time has that quality as followers of of jesus we need to give flavor to our communities to our cultures that's good in the name of jesus Um, and we need to be preserving you know preserving ultimately you know people but you know salt itself it's a very stable uh compound it's extremely stable so what does it mean Was it like lost its, loses its saltiness? What happens is, um, and what happened in, in certain places in this, this region, is that the salt would be corrupted by another chemical. And it would be so intertwined with it, you couldn't really separate the, the good salt from what was impure. And so what they would use that salt for is they'd throw on the pathways, on the roadways, so that vegetation couldn't grow. Because the salt still had its, like, quality to it in terms of that regard, that where you throw salt, you know, green, th- green things don't normally shoot up. And so they would put that on the pathway, and it would be trampled by people as you walk, right? So here, what it, it's not being said that God, if you lose your saltiness, that God is going to take you and throw you out on the road, and people are going to trample over you. No, that's not what it's saying. It's not about your salvation here. But it's about that testimony where people, the people of the world, were going to take you and throw you out on the, on the, on the road and trample over you like they would salt. In the sense of your testimony is trampled. You, you've lost your ability to speak love and truth and the goodness of Jesus into their lives because you fail to have the quality characteristics that a disciple is supposed to have, that we just went through in chapter five, one through ten, really one through twelve, and so that's what happens, and we know that this this happens. You know when, uh, you know, for example, it hurts all of us when a well-known preacher or something you know falls into sin, and then everybody hears about it in the community. And then, oh, well, they're no different than the rest. I don't need to listen, you know, to them. The, the good news of Jesus, the people of Jesus get trampled on. The testimony gets trampled on. But it can happen in our place of work. If you, you know, in a place of work, if um, if the reputation is you're a gossip or that you're lazy or that you're whatever, people aren't going to then be like, oh, and I want to hear what this person has to say about Jesus the testimony gets lost. You know, and so that's what is at the heart of the issue here. Not about your salvation, but about your testimony and usefulness for the for the kingdom. And so, you know, what I think we have in this first section of Matthew five, along with Galatians five twenty two, we take those side by side and it's like a it's a great litmus test for us. We can look at those, those lists and go, is this me? You know, do I, am I, where am I, you know, if I were to rank each of these, like on a one to ten, where would I be? Okay, now, better question, somebody who knows me really well, ranking me one to ten on each of these, like, where, where would I be? Where do I fall? Because that, what that does then, then is it highlights okay, in these certain characteristics I'm doing okay in, but in these other characteristics, something that's supposed to be true of Jesus, I'm not really doing a good job. I'm a five or I'm a three or I'm a one. Well, I got to confess that to the Lord, ask him to cleanse me, renew me. Because you're going to see if, if on that first category there's something where you're a five, a three, or a one, the, on the fruit of the spirit side, there's also going to be a lack there. It's gonna be a five or three or a one to match, right? I mean, it's just how it's gonna gonna flow. So, you know, if we examine ourselves, if we ask others to examine us and to help us. But you know, perhaps we should go back to that, you know, and use it as a test in our lives. You know, every few months, and say. I need to make sure I'm a healthy follower of Jesus. I want to help others be healthy followers of Jesus. I want to make a difference in my community and in, in the world that God's given us. This is the sort of character I need to have, and that's going to play out. This is the sort of fruit of the spirit that's going to be evident in my life. So, you know, I, you've got the sheets. I would encourage you to do that, to do that homework, and to do, you know, to do the work with it. Because, you know, I think for a lot of us, we do really want to, fo- I mean, I think every person in this room, you know, really wants to follow Jesus. It's like, I want to follow Jesus fully and with everything that I have. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to die with a lot of regret about how I lived for the Lord or didn't live for the Lord. And so that, what that means then is I've got to put some work in. Because being a you know what we see here in this is a mature disciple of Jesus. You know when those characteristics are on point, when that fruit of the spirit is on point, that's a mature follower of Jesus. Like that's what we all are striving. Like we want to be, but in order to be that, sometimes we have to recognize, wait, this is a hindrance, and so I've got to do some. I got to put some work in. This is a hindrance, so I got to put some work in. I hope there's also some encouragement that comes there that is more encouraging than anything else. That, you know, people, ourselves and people that say, well, look how God has changed my life because, you know, three years ago, five years ago, I couldn't, I, you know, my, my number would have been really low. You know, it would have been really low on pure in heart. But now look at, look at the improvement, you know, what God has done in my life and how He's changed me. And that there would be an excitement about that, and an encouragement to, hey, okay, I want to continue on, I want to continue on, Um, you know. And and I don't want this to be a thing where, okay, you know, you've, you know, we're just like scoring ourselves and trying to score. We're not trying to score everybody, but it is a thing. It's just some, you know, just something else in your toolbox that you can use that says, hey, I need to check and make sure that I'm really following Jesus because. I want to be the salt that is useful, you know. I want to be the light. I want to be the salt in this world that God wants us to be. Like we want to be that, so therefore, I have to make some checks here, you know. And and we all we all need this, um, you know. Yeah, I need this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just come to you now and just um, thank you for your, the words you've given us, especially those words of your Son. Jesus, you've told us what you've expected of us, and at the same time, we know we are nothing and can do nothing apart from you. That you are the vine and we are the branches. That our life, our spiritual life, our whole life has to be sourced in you. And so please help us. Even this morning, that you would show us where our, our, um, our characteristics, our attitude, our perspective is not like yours. And that you would change us. And Lord... Where we, we are more like you, where we've made progress, where you've changed us and worked in our lives, God, that we would give thanks. And we would give you the glory and credit and not ourselves that we've done some amazing thing. And Lord, help us to be obedient. And Lord, help us just to want to be obedient. As we take the bread and the cup this morning, just remind us this morning, dear God, of the cost of our salvation and the, the joy. You would just remind us the joy that we first had when our burdens fell off. When we stood free at the foot of the cross. and you had taken all away, our, our sin, our guilt, our debt. You had done away with it. Remind us of the joy that we've had in those times where we've been the closest to you and the most about your your business. Lord, cleanse us of our sins. Forgive us, Lord, for where we failed. Renew us, renew our hearts and minds and our strength. This morning we pray. Lord, give us the strength to put aside the things in our lives that don't please you or honor you, things that hinder purity of heart. Lord, um, heal our wounds, our pains, our disappointments, and help us to live even this week fully for your glory and for your honor. In your name, Jesus, we ask it.